For those of you that are online, I'll turn my microphone on. Good morning, everyone. I'll turn my gain down a little bit, the dial at the top, probably. The gain is too high. We've been making adjustments with our soundboard, and so um, there might just be a few little odd things as we turn on mics that we didn't check during the week while we were making adjustments. Um, But they'll be on top of it. Um, James uh, has been, and we're returning to our series on James, and James has been examining the early church and discovering where there may be some weaknesses and some cracks in the foundation and in the beams and posts of the church, figuratively speaking. Um, under the strain of persecution or just the pressure of living in an indifferent or hostile culture, uh, the church has been struggling. And so James, uh, the head of the church in Jerusalem, writes a open letter. Um, it's called uh, officially called a Catholic letter, small c Catholic. It's for the whole church. It's for everybody. It's not just for one specific church, like maybe uh, Corinthians or Ephesians is directed at a church. The book of James is for all churches. The letter of James is for all churches. And Essentially, James's concern is that the church live out the faith that they proclaim to have in a sovereign God. If God is trustworthy, if he's compassionate, and he fills his people with transforming power to live differently, then his church should be able, for the most part, to live that way. In the community of his people, we should see that transformation. And James has pinpointed areas in the wider church where he's not sure he's seen the transformation that should flow from the gospel, and from the power of the Spirit. So as we've been going through this series, this is just sort of a reminder because it was back before Christmas, James has said things like we shouldn't see favoritism, we shouldn't see classism or racism, we should not see quarreling and complaining, we should not see selfishness and preoccupation with worldly things and planning for wealth, we should not be fixated on those types of things that the rest of the world is fixated on. Instead, the church is called to and enabled to be a community of humble, spirit-filled brothers and sisters from all economic and ethnic and social and political walks of life whose hope is not in the circumstances that they may at this time be living in, but their hope is in the sovereignty of God and the redeeming power of Jesus. And in the closing paragraphs of chapter 5, and that's where we are for the next three weeks in chapter 5, James begins a concluding exhortation or a concluding encouragement to his listeners. Now, because the church of our day increasingly resembles the church of James's day, then this encouragement should land on us with the same force that it landed on the Christians then. We live in an increasingly difficult culture that is either indifferent or hostile to the things that we believe. We and the wider church, in terms of mainline denominations and various high-profile figures that you may have seen in the news, have splintered away over contentious issues. And this has affected the greater unity of the church in North America. So in this sense, we are the same as the church in James's time. Individual believers face the constant pressure of materialism and demands of the world on our time and attention. And so just like the church of James's day, the church of North America and our church here at Lakeside faces these same things. And so what James says here lands on us the same way. 
So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read verses 7 to 11 in James chapter 5, and we'll study closely what God would have us learn and how we ought to respond from what James is teaching. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is timeless, that it is as true to our hearts today as it was to the hearts of our brothers and sister Christians 2,000 years ago, because the human heart is not materially different than what it was then. We have the same fears, we have the same passions, we have the same desires expressed in a myriad of different ways, but still the same hope in a God that is also unchanged, who is steadfast, and who is sovereign. And so, Father, we just pray that we would take these words, we would have our eyes and our, our hearts open to what your Spirit would teach us in Christ's name. Amen. So James 5, 7 to 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we considered those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So the the theme of James' encouragement here rises to the surface, I think, fairly easily in this paragraph. You've probably all picked up on it, and it was the title of the message. Um, I think if we just do a quick survey across the text, we'll see how it's repeated. Uh, Be patient, therefore, brothers. Um, You know, be patient about the crop. Be patient, establish your hearts. And patience, brothers, is the example there, who remains steadfast, and you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. So six times here, Job, Job, not Job, James, six times here, James says, be patient, or look at the example of patience, steadfastness, uh, essentially a synonym. Um, Six times he says this. And then three times he gives us the context of this patience, which is going to be important. He says, because... The coming of the Lord, he says, the coming of the Lord is at hand. He says, the judge is standing at the door. So it's about patience in the context of the Lord's coming, in the context of future glory, in the context of future redemption. And in his conclusion here, what we discover, if you think all the way back, is that James has come full circle to his opening topic of the letter. This is exactly how James began writing to the church. He said in chapter, or verses 2 and 4 of chapter 1, after his greeting, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Again, a synonym virtually for patience, for enduring patience, steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now verse 4 right there should call you up short. You, you, you should stop there at verse 4 and realize that you should not keep reading until you reread that a couple of times. James is writing this letter. He introduces it to encourage these Christians to endure testing, to be patient, and they are to be patient and let the patience that they cultivate have its full effect. And did you catch what that was? To be made perfect and complete 
lacking in nothing. I mean, let that sink in. James says, patience will make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Like, wow. I mean, you're living your Christian life and you're thinking, how can I be made perfect, lacking in nothing, complete, fully mature in my Christian life? And James says, patience. I mean, if James was writing a clickbait headline for his Facebook post, it would be something like this. The devil hates this one trick. And you're like, what's the one trick? What's the one trick? Click. And after scrolling about seven pages of worthless article, they'll tell you at the bottom. James doesn't do that. He tells them right up front. Patience. Patience is the one trick. Patience is the thing that makes you complete and perfect and mature. Now, not perfect as in perfectionism. Perfect means mature. To be fully mature, to lack nothing, to be fully equipped, have everything that you need. A rough definition of patience from James's point of view might be to practice patience and patience being humility expressed over time. Right? You know those math questions you would get as they were teaching you how to graph things in algebra? If the y-axis is time and the x-axis is humility, then plot your experience of humility as, or patience as humility over time. Right? And Christian, to the same degree that you display steadfast patience, you are being made fully mature, perfect, and complete as you express humility over time, which James would call patience. And then as we've seen in the rest of the letter over the course of the nine weeks that we've been talking about it, James has been pointing out all the ways that his Christian friends have not been exhibiting patience. And you realize that James's letter is really all about patience. How we should cultivate it because it makes us complete and how the church that he's observing is lacking in it. And the symptoms that he describes are all symptoms of a lack of patience. The Christians want their recognition and status now, so they practice favoritism and classism. They want to be vindicated and receive justice now, so they are bickering and quarreling. In Corinth, Paul points out that the Christians are even taking each other to court because they want satisfaction now. They don't want to wait. They don't want to be patient. They don't want to wait for God's justice. They don't want to wait for God's vindication. They don't want to wait for God's satisfaction. These Christians want everything now, and so they are impatient, and all the symptoms of impatience are bubbling over. They're pursuing wealth the same way the world is because they want their stuff now. They want their reward now. And it's interesting that you can see that James is saying patience is the problem in all of these things. You lack patience. And that's why you bicker and you fight and you quarrel and you take each other to court and you pursue wealth and you do all these things because you haven't learned patience. So learn patience. James says the full effect of patience is to make the Christian complete and lacking in nothing. It's a bold statement. And we resemble very closely these first century Christians today, don't we? In our information age, which is built on the industrial age, we are conditioned to want everything faster and better than before. We want our news now, not at 6 and 11. We want our own self-checkout line so that we don't have to wait behind the guy with three carts of food piled to the rafters. We want our Amazon package delivered by a drone to our door three hours after we... buy it. Everything has to be now. We want to watch our TV shows and movies on demand, not wait for them to be broadcast. 
you remember when you were younger and you had to wait for the movie that you wanted to see to come on in the whole year? Right? Like you're waiting for Christmas so you can watch The Sound of Music. I love that movie. Yeah, well, just uh, settle down for about nine more months because you're not going to see it. Right? Now you want to see The Sound of Music. It's like 30 seconds away. And this conditioning flows into our temperament. We are an impatient people. We want satisfaction immediately. We want vindication of our rights and our standing now. We want answers quickly. We won't wait. And as Christians, that can pose real problems because the reality as Christians is that we belong in the now and not yet kingdom. So brothers and sisters, settle in because it's going to be a wait. It's not just going to be waiting for sound of music to come on the TV so you can watch it at Christmas time. It might be the weight of a lifetime. Our full satisfaction as Christians lies in the future restoration, not in present circumstances. And this is what James is driving at all through his letter. This is why steadfast patience is foundational to living contentedly in the grace of God. Returning to his opening theme in the conclusion, James establishes that that future context is what must be in mind if we are to grow in patience as Christians. We will not be patient unless we have future realities in mind. We live with eternity in our context. And he reinforces it with two illustrations. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. How long is James asking us to be patient? Until the coming of the Lord. That's like a long time. It seems like it's a long time away. It's a lifetime of patience for us. The Lord may come in our lifetime. He didn't come in their lifetime. He didn't come in 40 lifetimes in between us and them. And he may come in our lifetime, but I can tell you this, he'll come at the end of your lifetime, and you'll meet him. And so James says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. And that day comes to all of us on our last day. So he says it in verse 7 and 8 and 9, we saw the context is until the coming of the Lord, until the coming of the Lord, the judge is standing at the door. And James reinforces this command for patience with two incentives. As if becoming fully mature in the Christian life And complete and lacking in nothing is not incentive enough for us to wake up and learn patience. He gives two more incentives here in chapter 5. One positive incentive and one negative. James is employing the classic carrot and stick method here. And so he starts with a carrot and then he offers a stick. And both the carrot and the stick are related to our future encounter with Jesus. So let's look at the positive incentive first. And we'll spend most of our time there because I'm a positive guy. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. So James says, be patient. Be patient just like a farmer is patient. When we think of the metaphors of the Christian life in the New Testament, there's three central metaphors that are used of a Christian throughout the New Testament, from the Gospels through to Revelation. The three metaphors are the Christian as an athlete, the Christian as a soldier, and the Christian as a farmer. Now, the Christian as a farmer seems pretty boring compared to the Christian as an athlete or a soldier. We tend to remember the first two more often, especially in the writing of Paul. He describes the Christian life as one of a boxer 
who does not box at the air emptily, but it's full contact training so that he is fully fit and prepared for his ministry. Or an Olympic runner who is running for the prize. As Christians, we're not boxing each other, we're not running against each other, but we are fighting and we are running together for a common goal, the upward call of Jesus. As the Apostle Paul says at the very end of his life in his second letter to Timothy in chapter 4, he says the goal is to, at the end of our life, say that we have finished our course, that we have run the race, but also, he says, we can declare that we have fought the good fight. And that leads us to the metaphor of the Christian soldier as Christians as being prepared for battle. In Ephesians 6, Paul talks about putting on the full armor of God, the sword of the Spirit, the helmet of salvation, the sword of faith, all the things that we have to equip us for the battle and the spiritual warfare that is central to our understanding of the challenge of the Christian life. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul says that we're under the authority of the one who commands us, and he has the right to command us. And the purpose of the soldier is to obey the one with proper authority and not to get tangled up with civilian distractions. The Christian life is deployed as soldiers in service to the king and the kingdom. But then the third metaphor, as I mentioned, is that of a farmer. And it's interesting in that section of 2 Timothy that all three metaphors are piled on top of each other. And then Paul says at the end of all three metaphors, he says, think about these things. Jesus is going to help you understand what I'm talking about. I'll put it up here for you. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Paul just puts all three of those metaphors together, one line. And then he says, very interestingly, think about what I just said, and the Lord will give you understanding in everything. There is a purpose to these metaphors that are used throughout the New Testament to teach us something about the Christian life. Now, it's fairly easy to rally around the idea of being an athlete competing in the Olympic Games or a soldier serving a noble king fighting spiritual battles. You know, we can get excited about those metaphors that the Bible uses. It's a little harder to get excited about being a farmer. But in one sense, that's exactly why James chooses this metaphor for patience. That's the point of the agricultural metaphor. Farmers are not flashy heroes. They are quiet laborers who are dependent on the mercy of God for their very survival. The patient endurance of farming should mark the Christian life as we do not control every circumstance. That is what we will discover as we live. We are not in control of things. We cannot decide how our life is going to go. Instead, we wait on the sovereignty and the mercy and compassion of God. The athlete trains and the soldier does exercises, but the farmer waits. And that's why James uses this picture of the Christian life for us here in chapter 5. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Patience establishes or confirms or solidifies the state of our heart before the Lord comes. Like a farmer, we live our Christian life satisfied that God will produce the results of our steadfastness. In some ways, this is the perfect follow-up message to Darren Kendall's sermon on obedient faith a couple of weeks ago. 
What a great sermon that was. I got to listen to it afterward. And every observation and application in it was drawn directly from a right knowledge of God and his character. I like that guy. I think maybe we'll have him back again. It was a good message. But here we see James making the same point. Our patience is not an idle waiting, but an obedient, faithful waiting. Like a farmer, and as Darren talked about in his message, our job is to be obedient. We till the soil, we sow the seeds, we pick the stones, we weed the rows. Farmers aren't lazy. They're working. But then like a farmer, we have to wait for the early rains to water the crop and for the seed to grow. And we have to wait for the latter rains to bring the crop to fruition. The rains come in their time. We can't make the rain come, nor can we make the seeds grow. We have to wait on that in faith. We have to wait for the precious fruit of the earth. And that description, I believe, is very important as to what James says we're waiting for and what enables us to wait, what enables Christians to be patient. See, the farmer is able to be patient because that fruit that's coming is precious to him. It's his livelihood. It's his survival. The fruit we're waiting for as Christians is precious. It's more valuable than any irritation we may experience in waiting. It is more precious than anything we do without or forego while we wait. It is a greater treasure than any suffering we might endure in our waiting. Our ability as Christians to be patient is in direct proportion to how precious our view of the crop is. And the crop of our waiting is Christ. It's Jesus. It's his coming. Be wait, be patient and wait for the coming of the Lord. It is the precious fruit. It is Jesus Christ, a precious treasure to you, because it will be hard to wait patiently in this life if you do not treasure what you're waiting for. If you don't treasure Christ, if you don't treasure Jesus, then being patient in the Christian life will be hard, because you won't really care about what's coming, and you'll gladly pursue whatever's right in front of you rather than wait for the treasure, the precious fruit. When the iPhone first came out in the mid-2000s, for the first few years, there always seemed to be a news story about Apple nerds lined up for like three days to get the latest iPhone, right? They'd camp on the street to get that precious phone, the first one to have it. Now everybody's got an iPhone. Like, eight-year-olds have iPhones. (laughs) When the Star Wars prequels came out, finally, in the 90s, there was Star Wars nerds camped out for days, To be the first to see that amazing new Star Wars movie, it wasn't worth it. (laughs) Just to remind you, it had Jar Jar Binks in it. If something is precious to us, we will be patient. On the other hand, there are things that we would not even deviate two steps out of our way to pick up for free off the pavement or endure any hardship for If somebody offered me Taylor Swift tickets for the burger that I'm currently eating, I'd be like, no, I like the burger. I'm not not even going to bend over to pick up Taylor Swift tickets. (laughs) Jesus is far better than the next iPhone. Jesus is better than the next Marvel movie, the next video game, the next concert, the next whatever. 
He's better than the retirement that you're waiting for. He's better than your first crush or your last crush. He's better than your current crush. He's better than your spouse, your kids. Whatever patience you have to live for these other things, Jesus is better than all of those things. And so if you cherish Christ, James says, you will learn to be patient, and we will cultivate patience as we cultivate a treasuring of Christ. Jesus describes his truest disciples as those who would give up everything in order to gain him. Matthew thirteen forty four says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Because Jesus is so precious of a treasure. Paul says in Philippians, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And once again, James looks at the, the church and he sees the quarrels and he sees them wanting their satisfaction now and their vindication now and their everything now. And he sees you are impatient because you're not treasuring Christ. If you treasured Christ, you could put up with whatever's going on in your life. As you wait for him. How are we doing? How's our patience doing as we wait for Christ? Our patience with each other, as James would point out in the church. Are are we patient with our brothers and sisters? Are we patient with church leadership? Are you patient with me? That's a test, I know. Right? Are we being patient with each other? How is our patience doing with our family? with our co-workers? How's our patience with our politicians about our circumstances and the country we live in? As Christians, how's our patience doing? Are we cultivating patience because we don't treasure a particular government? We don't treasure a particular way of doing church. We don't treasure a particular, you know, getting my way now the way I want it. We treasure Christ. That's where our eyes are. We cultivate patience with all of these things, church and world, as we treasure Christ. Make him precious and your patience will grow. And as our patience grows, the quarreling and the squabbling and the indifference and the favoritism and the unsettledness and the discontentment, it all diminishes as we treasure Christ. That's what James wants his church to do. James has been looking at these grumbling saints in his church, and he's not convinced that Jesus is precious to them. It looks more like the minor inconveniences of living in community with each other is getting more of their attention than the end result of being in the presence of their Savior. Speaking of grumbling, the second incentive is a warning, and this one's not as long, don't worry. If the first incentive is the carrot, the the precious, treasured Jesus and his coming, then James also has a stick. He says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Again, the imminence of Christ coming into your life should be an incentive for you not to grumble and be impatient. James is being very practical. He's talking about how we treat each other, how to live our Christian life. He's not just talking about waiting patiently for Jesus to return. He means literally be patient in all of your circumstances. Stop grumbling and fighting and complaining because the judge is near. He's right at the door. 
Maybe you're not cherishing Jesus as much as you should right now, Christian. Maybe even as I said that, for some of you, for some that might be listening online, that's the first time you've even conceived of the Christian life in that fashion. Really, is my Christian life mainly about cherishing Christ? Does that put everything else in perspective? Yes. But we go through seasons of that. There are times in my life when I don't cherish Jesus to the degree that I should. I mean, we never do to the degree that we should. But I have lesser and greater seasons in my life. Sometimes I wake up and I realize I just haven't been loving Jesus as much as I should. But, but wherever you are in your heart towards Jesus, James gives you another incentive. He says, also keep in mind that he's the judge. Maybe this will motivate you. That the judge is right outside the door. And this should bring a sober-minded perspective to whatever nonsense is going on in the church or whatever nonsense is going on in your personal life. You ever been horsing around with your friends or squabbling with your brother or your sister in the basement and your squabble and your horsing around keeps getting louder and rougher and just plain stupider until you hear your parents' footsteps at the top of the stairs? The judge is at the door. Settle down. Well, that's what James says here. He says, you guys are all grumbling and carrying on and taking each other to court and fighting and squabbling. The judge is at the door. He can probably hear what's going on in the church. I'm pretty sure he can. Is your heart established and ready for the coming of the judge? Now, that's not to say, and I don't want to paint the picture, that God is trying to catch us misbehaving. In fact, God is just the opposite God has given us our whole life to get ourselves ready. He doesn't want us to encounter him unprepared. So he stands at the door, and he waits, and he's patient. But he's there, and he is the judge, and he wants us to be ready. Paul says in Romans 2, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Paul's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes and the Jewish people who've gone way off track with their worship of God. And he says, you guys, do you not understand that God is being exceedingly patient with you because he does not want to catch you misbehaving. He wants you in his kindness and patience to be prepared for his coming. God is patient. He's not coming or taking anyone before their time. So do not waste the patience of God with foolishness and selfishness, but practice steadfast, patient faith, obedient faith, and your patience will have its full effect, your maturity and completeness in Christ. Not only does God give us our life and show us patience to be prepared, James says he's given us, on top of these carrot and sticks, he's given us a whole history of examples in steadfast patience so that we would get the message. James goes on, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So James equates the current situation of the Christians in his time period in Jerusalem and the surrounding area to the ends of the earth where the church had been scattered. He compares that current situation of the Christians in their indifferent and hostile culture to the same situation that the prophets of God faced. James is basically saying, you're not facing anything that God's faithful people have not always faced. All the way back to the prophets. The prophets professed a true faith in God, and they remained steadfast in their faith. 
And James doesn't need to name any specific prophet because they all showed the same steadfast patient. Whether it's Elijah being chased by Jezebel or Jeremiah imprisoned by King Zedekiah, the prophets are all an example of what James is pressing in on. Quiet, patient confidence in the vindication and redemption of the Lord that's coming. And then even before the prophets, God gave us the example of Job. He says, you've heard of Job and his patience, right? It's a rhetorical question. They've all heard of it. They've all heard of the patience of Job. And what was the purpose of God there to bring about in Job's life? You get to the end of Job. It's a long book, but you get to the final chapters, and the purpose of God is a restoration of Job. The restoration of a man so afflicted and despised that even his own wife told him to just curse God and die. But Job would not renounce his God. No matter what. No matter the accusations of his false friends. No matter the, you know, encouragement, so to speak, of his wife. He remained steadfast in his faith. He grumbled, we'll admit, But he remained steadfast, and he was rewarded. Now, it can sometimes be hard to see the gospel or the good news in James, because James is so focused on behavior and the practice of the Christian life and wanting to see that transformation in the Christian life, that it almost seems like grace is hard to find in James. But we've seen as we've gone through this series, the gospel underlying everything that James has to say so far, and it's no different here. What's the good news in this passage? What hope is held out for believers here? Well, first of all, I would see here the hope that's held out is that Jesus is the precious fruit that results from a life of cultivated, faithful patience. The truth that Jesus is worth waiting for is here. That's the good news, that we have a God and we have a Savior who is absolutely worth waiting for. That he is superior to every substitute that we could possibly be distracted by in this life. That he will replace and redeem every suffering and every persecution that we might experience. He will wipe away all of those tears. He will restore all of those years that have been lost. Also... The good news here is that God is producing this fruit. He's the one that brings the rains. He's the one that causes the growth. It's not our striving. It's God's compassion and mercy and sovereignty that brings about our encounter with Christ in the end. He empowers our sanctification and our growth in maturity and patience. The good news is that Jesus is also the judge, and he will judge whatever persecution or suffering or injustice that we face patiently and steadfastly. We know that God will judge perfectly. We don't have to judge. We don't have to get our vindication. We don't have to give people their comeuppets because we wait patiently for the judge, and he will judge with perfect justice. And whatever loss that we've suffered in this life will be transformed into victory in the next life. That's all good news. That's all gospel right here. The good news is that like the prophets, there is a reward of blessing at the end of our patience. We're not suffering without purpose. God is not asking us to live in some sort of fallen estate with no reward or victory at the end. He promises reward. He promises blessing. We live with the precious treasure of Christ in view and the victory and vindication of a righteous God and the blessing and reward that will come when we meet our creator. That's good news. And it's all right here. In James, some people say don't doesn't preach the gospel, but I don't see how you say any of this without the gospel. 
I don't don't see how you live this life without that good news in view, without that Holy Spirit performing the transformation and sanctification that needs to take place. And that's the good news that underlines this exhortation of James, that underpins every command of the Bible for that matter. James just says, be patient. And that's how he opened the letter. And we realize now this whole letter has been about patience. And the lack of patience causing a lot of problems. But the cultivation of patience, that amazing verse 4, to make you perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. It's the one trick the devil hates when Christians learn how to be patient with each other, with the world, with their politicians, with their family, with their co-workers, with their circumstances, with whatever life brings them. Patience makes us complete. And all of our hope is in the coming Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this lesson from James. Uh, Just as his church was no different than the people of Israel in the Old Testament, our church is no different than his church 2,000 years ago. We are a people that need to learn patience. We are people that look at our circumstances and tend to get very agitated. We want it to change now, vindication now, our toys now, our satisfaction now. And yet, the good news is is that there is a perfect joy and a perfect satisfaction and a perfect redemption coming. And as we cultivate our patience, the blessing of that coming will be greater and greater for us. And our blessing in this life will be greater and greater Because patience will just let all of that struggle and strife and anxiety melt away in the light of our knowledge of Christ and his reward. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.